and welcome to the Faith in Politics podcast with Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison. This month we have a very special Grenfell-centred episode, but first off, Rachel Lampard, the team leader at the Joint Public Issues team, joins us for the monthly musing. I don't know if you've ever been without a home. I've lived in various grotty rented houses and my husband and I spent three months camping with relatives when our house purchase fell through. But I've been fortunate, I've never been homeless and I've always known where I was going to sleep. At the beginning of June, the North Kensington Law Centre reported that of the 210 families from Grenfell Tower and Walk, just 81 have been settled permanently. The others are all in temporary or emergency accommodation, along with many other families from neighbouring blocks who've had to leave their homes. Being without a home is about much more than lacking a roof over your head. Your home is, or should be, a place of safety for you and for your family, a place where you can keep your belongings, store your memories. It's a place where you can offer hospitality and thus discover more about yourself. Imagine never being able to invite a school friend for tea. A place where you can put down roots, make plans for the future, build relationships. A home is about much more than just bricks and mortar, but the bricks and the mortar are crucial. When the people of Israel were in exile, Isaiah wrote of the vision of the future for God's children. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. What a lovely image from a place of exile and disruption and longing that the people should inhabit, dwell and then eat their own produce. The powerful images of home in the Bible show how important a true home is for all of us, enabling us to be and become, to fulfil our God-given potential. This vision was what God wanted for God's people, to live life in all its fullness. But it was not a passive vision, because this is a God who draws people away from slavery and oppression into a land of promise, a God who longs for justice for the weakest and the most vulnerable. We should never forget this cry for justice. The people of Grenfell need homes, as do the many other homeless or badly housed people in this country. Homes which they can inhabit, where they can find security, healing, reconnection, where they can thrive and then begin to grow and face the future. As we take part in public life, in our voting, in our conversations, in our opinion forming, let us hold on to this cry for justice that all may inhabit their homes and plant and eat their fruit. And now to the interview itself, uh, where we have spoken to Emma Dent Code, the MP for Kensington, Reverend Mike Long of Notting Hill Methodist Church, and Portia Thaxton, a local councillor and member of the community.
Welcome back to um, the Faith in Politics podcast. This week we've got a very special episode where we're going to be discussing Grenfell. We're very blessed to have some wonderful guests. But just for those of you um, who may not know a lot, on the 14th of June 2017, a fire started in Grenfell Tower. It quickly spread and tragically took the lives of at least 72 people. It's now a year on and the Blackened Tower remains as a stark reminder of this tragedy. And so we'd like to, um, we've got three brilliant guests this week who are going to introduce themselves and then we're going to have a short discussion um, about um, what happened just a year ago. Hi, my name is Mike Long and I'm the minister at Nottingham Methodist Church. Emma Denkode, I'm an MP for Kensington and a local councillor in Kensington and Chelsea and a long-time resident born and bred. Portia Thaxter, outreach worker, Grenville outreach worker, local councillor for St Helens Ward and I'm also a resident for the past 30 years. Um, brilliant, so if we could all just start really um, discussing the, the night of the fire itself and um, what the emotions were like and where you were when you heard. Okay, um... I was woken up by helicopters. Um, I couldn't work out why there were so many for so long. Um, So I turned the radio on and found out what happened. Um, And I I ran down to the site. Um, I'd never talk about what I saw. Um, I can talk about what I did and who I met and um, what everybody was doing or not doing. Uh, But I'm not going to talk about that. Um, I was woken up... um but at half past four by one of my church members who'd seen the news and I came down to the area not expecting to to do very much or to be helpful because I expected an emergency plan would be in operation. I've been to those kind of training events before. I just thought it would be good to be visible somewhere and not being able to get to the church because it was cordoned off was just in the street and then in fact Portia called me on, on the phone. She was already in the street and had been I think up for, for many hours um, and I spent some time, some time with, with, with Portia and with other people in the street for, for the next few hours, really. I was walking up by helicopters, my friends were calling my phone, and um, basically, I just can't remember. All I was thinking, I hope my friend is okay, I hope my friend is okay, I hope my friend is okay. Deep breathing, I had panic attacks, I, I blanked out, I just couldn't remember what else happened. Thank you for sharing those stories. What has it taught you about community over the past um, year and at the time? What were your notions of community then and have they changed since then? Uh, we've always had a very, very strong community in Labrick Grove. It's an amazing place to bring up children because half the neighbourhood are keeping an eye on them for you mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, letting you know what's going on. Um, and also, if you need help, there's always somebody mm-hmm. around. Um, so we've always, always been a very, very strong community around here, um, and thank heavens we were. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of groups in the area were already um, coalescing um, to fight the council on various uh, development plans they had and the Westwick Trust, so they were already mobilised to save uh, various buildings and so on, so they were already mobilised and connected. So when the fire happened, they could, it was, you know, they, they, all, they all stepped up. Um, and uh, worked together within within a matter of hours. They had WhatsApp groups and they were sorting out um, all the goods and looking after people and um, taking over community spaces. That happened very quickly because the community was fantastic already. Um, and since then we've seen that they've actually taken over the work that the council should have done and failed to do. 
Well, my experience is, is, uh, is the same as Emma's, um, though I've much less experience to fall back on. I think what, what struck me was the way in which um, people in the community very much were able to work together. What I mean by that is people uh, didn't come with their own particular agendas, their own... Um, their own issues. What, what, what happened was that people managed to put all those things aside and work together in the most remarkable of ways. So we, we didn't find the usual kind of patterns that you might expect of, of behaviour or you know, who, who are the people who are doing the organising and who are the people doing the doing or how do those things work. It, it, was, it wasn't like that. We saw a genuine partnership whereby often people who would often be perhaps in the organising and managing roles were doing the donkey work and others perhaps who might not normally take those those positions perhaps in other spheres of their life were actually taking on the leadership and the organizing and and everybody felt that that was that was appropriate and right and effective and i think that displayed something about the the nature of the community we have here and i'd like to think that that will continue in many ways too and in certainly in a number of the community projects that i've been involved in since that has continued to be the case and um, where especially local residents are being given a much stronger voice um, and I, and i think that's that's uh, really positive for the for the future of the whole area. It's a very diverse community as well. We're very diverse, and we we just get along. We feel each other's pain, burdens. We experience this together, so we can empathise with each other. I think I think what has also happened, which is what Mike was explaining, is that we are very egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why when the council comes in and tries to tell us what we should be having and what's best for us, uh, that we fight that <laughs> because we are egalitarians. And I've always felt that. I never thought I'm better than anybody else because I'm parade around in, in Westminster or whatever I was doing before. I've never thought that. And I would be devastated if anybody did think that of me. Um, we're very egalitarian and that's how it's staying. That's that's amazing to hear and thank you for sharing so much about that. Um, one thing which actually two of you are big members of and um, part of the Methodist community here, what part what place does the church have post tragedy and um, why is it so important and why in this case has it been so important? The Methodist Church, um, Reverend Long, he opened the church up as soon as the police opened the the tape because it was all blocked off. So I think that was it was one of the main centres. Um, was it six o'clock in the morning? I cannot remember, but we are the centre of it. And within hours, so many people came with donations. I think I was one of the first volunteers actually, but I was still wandering, going around trying to get my head sorted. I was going around in a daze thinking what, why, when, where, how. You know, we are the main point of call, I believe, because we were on the ground from maybe 1.30 in the morning. I, th- I think the church has shown that it's got a, a valuable role in the community. It's partly simply where we're sited, mm-hmm. <laughs> tragically so, so close to the tower. It's partly be- because our building is quite an accessible building, and it's partly because the church has been able to offer that to the community for a number of uh, projects and in a number of different ways. So I, I prefer not so much to talk about what the church has done or been, but more about what the church has allowed to happen and and allowed the community to maybe not to to own the space, but at least to feel that, that, that there's a partnership going on. Um, so 
one of the the quotes that there's a, that's been put to me is that we were some of the quiet people allowed people to be angry and to be sad and and i like that because it it suggests that it's a safe space where people actually can actually you know shout and scream and cry and and help to make sense of all that's happened and all the calls for justice um in in a way that is going to be heard and and heard well and and i hope that that the church will continue to be a a part of that and to be seen at by the community as 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 there for them indeed many muslims regard us as their church and indeed other churches it doesn't mean that they're not still muslims and will continue to be muslims but it it is it is established new partnerships which i think are good for the the community as a whole going forward um, and of course as you said mike that's not to discount the role that people outside of the church of other faiths mm-hmm. and of none mm-hmm. have have played as well um emma really you in particular we'd wanted to to discuss this with um, particularly from the point of view that you are the first ever Labour MP for Kensington. Um, you have been accused of politicising the tragedy. Why is it that this tragedy is political? Um, I've been accused of an awful lot of things <laughs> over the last year, um, and some of them are pretty insulting, including that. Um, yeah, and you know, I've been a councillor for 12 years, and I'm going to continue to be there to keep an eye on the council. Um, you know what what happened was the result of years and years of mismanagement, neglect, um, disdain for social tenants. It's been said in various arena, um, and I'll say it again. That's true, and we saw that there was a select committee at Parliament yesterday um, with um, a group of survivors and uh, the chief executive and leader of the council, um, and that's a cross-party committee, and members of both sides were appalled at what they were hearing. Um, so I, I don't think the council still understands what they've missed. They still under, don't understand what they don't understand, um, and that's um, um, it's it's uh, it is it is uh, it's small p political, and it has become big p political. I'm not politicising it. I don't have to because um, the people in the area were complaining about this for years and years and years and were ignored, and they were ignored because they're social tenants and they're beneath contempt in some people's eyes. And I've seen that on the council. I've seen actually some terrible things have been said, and I kept a note of all the awful things people have said over the years. Um, so I'm afraid that's true. And that does not apply to all Conservatives. I was a group in a group of a resident association last night in South Kensington, absolutely lovely people and very compassionate and they're also appalled at the council. So it's nothing to do with, with party politics from that point of view. But the council has been run by Conservatives forever. And uh, we're going to put compassion back into this borough. I think anything of this scale is, going to, is, is inevitably a political event. Mm-hmm. Um, what I suppose I want to add to what Emma said is that it, it goes beyond the local as well. I think there's, there's, a, there's a wider political dimension to this, especially, of course, in terms of housing issues. That, that's, the local council may, may indeed have, have particular responsibilities there, but it, there's a bigger narrative here about social housing more generally and indeed policies that governments have, have followed for many, many years, which 
I think there's a, there's a case to argue, have also had some factor in the terrible um, the terrible tragedy at Grenfell Tower as well. And indeed the experiences of many, many people who since the fire have been in touch and saying, well, we, we also... We also feel that way. The experience that we've been hearing about that—that's ours as well. So inevitably, this is this is a, not just a local political event. It, it's actually symbolising simply that it's a wider political issue as well. And Portia, as a very long-term resident of this community, um, would you agree that this is a nakedly political tragedy? To be quite honest with you, um, I do believe it's political, but I also believe that it's also neglect. You are called to represent the community, and if you're not doing so, I think they should step down. Leaders are, are called to be leaders, you know? We're all equal in God's eyes, so I do believe it is political, and I also believe it's neglect. And what do you feel that it says about housing issues more generally? Um, well, we've been debating that endlessly <laughs> in uh, Westminster and we'll continue to do so until we get any kind of traction at all. And there's various new bills coming through um, to review the way social housing is funded um, and we're getting nowhere. We're banging our head against a brick wall. Just the issue of cladding, it's just so blatantly obvious that, that to have flammable cladding wrapped around buildings where people live is, um, is horrendous terrifying and yet there are 300 buildings around the country which still have it um, and uh, the government has said oh well we can use some of the money we were going to spend on social housing to do that then um, and that's not good enough they're not putting a single additional penny into that I find that terrifying and I think that confirms what everybody fears that social tenants are second class and that was one of the questions that uh, came up at the select committee yesterday one of the conservatives said to one of the survivors, you said that you felt you were being treated as second-class citizens. Do you think the council has ever treated you as first-class citizens? And he said no. So that is, I think, that that is a prevailing view from government, not from all the Conservatives by any means, but from government, from the Cabinet, that social tenants are second-class and they are not worthy of the same rights uh, as everybody else. And I find that really alarming. So... One thing that um, I think has been really interesting to look at over the year um, has been how the political vocabulary has changed from what the immediate response was and what it has been now. Theresa May recently said that she was sorry that she came off as a bit of a robot at the time. But how do you think that the politics or politicians have changed their response from the, the original event to a year on? Has there been a change? Uh, I, I think they've been listening to their public relations advisers um, to say you're sorry after a year in the week of the anniversary was too little, too late and people aren't convinced because sorry isn't enough you actually have to back it up with action and we're not seeing any action at all we've asked the, the uh, government over and again to send in commissioners to deal with rehousing people and they won't do it we've been asking since July last year for that, 11 months they still won't do it because because it would look bad politically. And actually, the most important thing is that people need rehousing. I haven't seen any change at all. They may be better at trying to look sad, and they say they're so, so sorry. Sorry is not enough. My question is, what is the meaning of leadership? I mean, when you're put in a position to rule a country, you're supposed to make reasonable choices for residents. 
And I also believe that cultural intelligence is very necessary in that position. We all have a voice and we all should be looked after. My, my sense is that the, time and time again, the politicians have, have struggled to understand the scale of what has happened and the depth of feeling um, and yeah, the, the scale of human tragedy and the nature of the response. So uh, we, we find a number of times things being expanded and expanded and expanded because a local authority or a government project or goal command or whatever it is hasn't realised that they need to do this as well or that the task they'd set themselves actually is now much larger than they had thought. And so the the scale just keeps keeps getting bigger and bigger and and there there seems to be therefore a lot a lot of reacting and and being on the back foot which i think is to some extent understandable but is also regrettable at the same time that that um we often seem to have things dictated by events rather than a more proactive response and indeed as Portia says leadership from those charged with that responsibility. I wonder whether one of the issues that may come out of this, I would like to think personally, is, is also about the way in which local government works, whether it's a long-established conservative local authority, or indeed I've, I've been in areas where long-established labour authorities too, and how local people feel that they are being listened to and have a voice. And, and the way in which local authority government, I mean, there are different models, actually, actually is structured so that you can both be effective, but also you're not just having decisions made by a few people and others feeling they have no say um, in, in the process. And indeed, often don't understand how things are working or why decisions are being taken. And that, therefore, there's a huge alienation locally about politics. There's a whole raft of reasons for that going back decades. One of, if there's anything that good, good that could ever come out of this, one might be a new kind of um, climate of political engagement, both from local residents who are determined to be much more involved and to be heard and to have justice, and perhaps from the authorities who respond willingly to that. Um, yeah, um, in my um, year in Westminster, I've been very, very impressed, as uh, I said before, about how the select committees work. Um, they consult widely. They get hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people responding. Um, and it's cross-party working. Um, and they're very, very impressive. And that's how it should work, actually. That's how it should work. Um, you know, the, the, the balance of people on those committees is, it always seems quite fair, of people with different expertise and so on. Um, and, um, you know, they work out their work programmes together. And that's how good cross-party working should be. And maybe councils could have a look at that cause, because... Even with the supposed cultural change I see at the council, actually, it's same old. Thank you. Um, our last question um, is, what are your hopes for the inquiry? My hope for the inquiry would be to reveal the truth, justice, so that people can live in peace and move on with their lives, because we're far away from that at present. People are still living... <laughs> in misery, basically, looking for hope and peace and love and compassion. So this is what we need. That's my view. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The um, inquiry is just looking at what happened and the process that led up to it. And I think the two weeks after the fire, and I think that's it. I think that's where it ends. Um, you know, the remit, it would have been nice if the remit had been wider to look at the 
political, economic and social issues, but it's not. that I'm sure that work will be done elsewhere. Um, you know, many people aren't happy with the way it's proceeding. Uh, we've had yet another person carted off in an ambulance this week from the inquiry because um, not only because they were showing body cam images, um, but because the room that the family and friends were sitting in was stuffy, didn't have enough chairs, and was very poorly accommodated for them. Um, you know, they're, they're still showing disdain for the second-class citizens <clears> or <throat> the victims of this horrible atrocity. Um, you know, we do, as Portia said, we need we need the truth out of this. And one of the things mitigating against it is that uh, various parties involved have endless amounts of legal uh, funding for, for their advisers, and others don't. Um, so I'm very concerned about how that may or may not work out. Uh, the judge is a technical expert. I'm hoping he won't be because of that, that he won't be swayed by those kind of um, arguments, and that he'll see beyond that to the truth. But there are a lot of people very worried. Um, we need that groundwork of truth um, so that we can um, get the justice through the criminal investigation as well that's ongoing, because all these findings and recommendations, which will have to be enacted straight away, um, will we'll we'll feed into the criminal investigation. Um, and um, if nobody goes to jail at the end of this whole process, there's going to be a very happy, unhappy North Kensington a very unhappy North Kensington because people should be held accountable. And my my hope for the inquiry is a number of things. One is that it's it's managed well and humanely for for the victims and and for the bereaved, um, and that that's going to be a hard and ongoing process. But it's it's so important that um, that 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 people are at the centre of this and the people who matter most. So that's one hope. Another hope is that, that obviously, that, that truth and justice come out, but that it's, it's also clear and is understandable. This is a very complex inquiry process. And I expect, therefore, whatever conclusions reach will be, I don't know, many volumes in size. We need some way of being able to, to get through that to actually what the heart of the matter is so that the people who have been most affected have a very clear sense of, of what the findings are. So we don't end up with a kind of obfuscation or confusion by the sheer volume of what is then being, being concluded and don't lose sight of the, the real centre of, of, of the heart of the matter. And my fear, I suppose, is that that might happen. And that and the, things get lost in that process because it is, and I see why it must be technical, but it, but it must be um, compassionate and it must be just and it must be fair at the same time. And my, I suppose, the other hope is that from the inquiry process long term, it will set a new standard for the way inquiries could be run, hopefully, that is seen to be a new model in such contrast to the Hillsborough process. And, and that so many things change for the better as a result of the inquiry's findings. Well, thank you all so much for speaking to us today. Um, we wanted to close. Perhaps, Mike, you'd like to, to pray for the community, the survivors, and the church more generally, that this horrible tragedy will be the impetus for genuine, substantial, and much-needed change. Oh, God, we know that 
um, in the scriptures and in your dealings with all your people, you have a particular heart for those who are most vulnerable, most marginalised and are the victims of other people's neglect or cruelty. We pray for those who in all kinds of ways have been affected by this terrible tragedy. We think especially of the bereaved and the survivors. We think of those who have lost their homes and have lost everything. And for all those who are still only beginning to come to terms with what has happened to them or those close to them. We recognise there is such a long road ahead and we pray for all those involved in the processes to follow, all those who are involved in the counselling process, involved in the justice processes and all those who are given responsibilities for enabling and supporting our local communities. And we ask that there might be justice and truth. We ask that there might be that deep justice which goes to the very heart of all things. And we pray that at the centre of all that transpires, your love for those who are most vulnerable might be acknowledged and made clear. And we pray that you might eventually bring all of us to a place where we might experience some measure of not only justice, but through justice a measure of healing and of peace. In the name of Jesus our Saviour. Amen. So back in the studio, it's Rachel and Helen. And I mean, that was just an incredible interview. Um, I was, felt so privileged to be able to talk to those three people who are so intimately involved in Grenfell and um, the aftermath of it and are still really involved. So it's absolutely fascinating um, to be there. And yeah, even before the way that they're talking to each other. Um, hmm. yeah. yeah, when we got in, we thought that we might have to introduce them and they very quickly sort of chatted away and it became clear that they had known each other not just subsequent to the tragedy but long beforehand because as Emma touched upon they really are a very tight-knit community yeah which is just so lovely to see and like yeah they knew each other they're talking about people they're talking about the same people and what needs to be done and sorting out minibuses for people and all that day-to-day stuff it felt really real and it felt really kind of true to the community which was gorgeous I am um, I think what I really enjoyed being picked up that um, Emma picked up really well was the fact that the Grenfell Inquiry could not be the end. Um, the, the Grenfell Inquiry is just about Grenfell and it's um, just um, about what happened on that night. And it's really important that we remember that social and economic factors outside of the Grenfell Tower, which affects all social housing, we need to make sure that... Um, Grenfell isn't played out as just a tragic accident, but it's yeah. a systemic problem. Yeah, exactly. In social housing, and that was something that was really picked up, picked up by nearly all of them when we asked what their hopes for the inquiry were. Was the fear that it would be seen as very much a technical? Well, these are the exact minute details of everything that went on, without any sort of appreciation of the the broader, particularly economic context. Yeah, and I think what Mike said about um, things needed to be people-centred again was really important. Yeah, I think it was 
I think what he what one of the things that really came out from for me from him was um that housing policy needs to be tenant centered again social housing policy and not landlord centered and not government centered it needs to be people and tenant centered which is really really important and making sure that um people don't feel like second class citizens because they live in social housing um that they are just as important as everybody else and mm. they their views need to be respected and listened to which mm. they haven't been until this tragedy yeah. happened and that was the details of that and that was all very difficult to listen to but as we discussed on the way out the door, both of us, I think we both left feeling quite heartened by the interview. Uh, Mike told us beforehand that people in the community had actually quit their jobs to help. Um, and that was just a really incredible thing to hear, basically. Yeah, and it shows, I think, that while a lot of us fear that community is dead, and I think it's, I think there is an increase in individualisation in communities these days, around a tragedy sometimes or around a big event people do come together people care about each other and they want to make sure everybody does well so it gives you a faith in humanity again hearing mm. the stories although it's such an in like the event was so tragic it re- it really restored my faith in humanity and those three mm. people yeah such intimate and distinct humanity was there and mm. it was so love to have an interview where i didn't feel it was polished it was really true yeah exactly so yeah it was just a wonderful opportunity for us and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and you could see the passion and the care that came through um so don't forget to tune in next month for our next episode and thanks for listening you've been listening to faith in politics with helen Byrne and rachel allison And if you enjoy Faith in Politics, which of course you do, then don't forget to share the love by rating, reviewing and subscribing to us on iTunes, which will help other listeners to find us as well. Thanks a million, as always, for listening.